Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. My name is Greg McDonough. I'm the CEO and founder of Blackburn Capital Advisors and the chapter president of the Entrepreneurs Organization of Washington, DC. Today's guest is a dynamic and forward-thinking leader, a longtime entrepreneur, the senior partner at Deliver Strategies. Jim Arnold, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on our show. So our show focuses on leadership. And my favorite question to ask my guests um, is tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Um, great. So you gave me the prompt to come up with three words. So I did that. So, so the first is that a leader needs to be infallible, right? So mistakes happen, right? And, and I continue to make mistakes even to this day. I think the, the important thing about mistakes is that we learn from them, right? And, the, and you know, there's, there's some things I've learned, like running, running companies, one of the most important things is to not have a finger pointing mentality like when mistakes happen because no one really wants to make a mistake so if we can learn from it and find out okay is this just human error or do we have a process problem that we need to address and, and fix and that clearly if you have an employee that constantly makes mistakes you got to deal with it right um but generally you know getting angry or yelling at people or whatever it doesn't really help um, the other thing I really like about this idea about not being infallible is I can't remember exactly what management book it was. It's about these, the lasting companies, which is funny. It was written like in the, I think the late nineties. And then all those companies had problems afterwards. But anyway, there was just, this really, stuck with, this really stuck with me. And it was when things go wrong, if you're a leader, look in the mirror. Right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to envision you're like in the corner office and you got windows that look out under your employees. And then so the, the corollary of that is when things go right, look out the window. Right. So get, give credit to everybody else when things go right and shoulder your responsibility when things go wrong. I love that. Okay. And I think the second thing for me is this idea that you have to be hard or macho or emotionless, like to be a leader. I mean, we're all human beings. And so the best thing in my experience is that we acknowledge emotions, right? Because last I looked, none of us are able to go through the day without being emotional one way or the other, right? And so if emotions get, get in the way, if you have people who get angry or um, people who are fearful or people who get jealous of their coworkers or whatever, you got to deal with those. And the best way to deal with those is straight on and have a conversation about it. I think the other thing is, for me, like I, I have shed tears, like in being a leader, both in times of like sorrow and in times of really happiness. I got to say, when you see someone like just rise to the occasion, and maybe you're giving them public acknowledgement, you know, sometimes I'll get real emotional about it. It just makes me feel so good. So, and then the third thing for me is that it's hard. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is there's always going to be challenges, right? And part of being a business is being able to deal with challenges. And, but what I mean by it's hard is you should want to go to work and you should love the people you work with and you should have a purpose 
and you should deal with stuff, right? So if there are issues, deal with it, right? And so that you're all like on the same page. Um, I've been in organizations where we're not all on the same page and that's it becomes not fun, right? So as leaders, if you're actually running a company, you've got that opportunity and responsibility to make sure you create a work, you know, a work environment and a ethos that everyone likes it. And I, you know, I say we've, we've accomplished it. I've got now six other business partners. So there's seven partners now in the firm. And, and we really honestly all, I mean, it's a strong word, but I'll say we honestly love each other, right? It's a, it's a really great group of people and it makes all the difference in the world. That's fantastic. Um, jumping back to your, the first point you were making about being infallible and learning from mistakes. Talk to us a little bit about the how, like how, how have you approached or give us a situation that you've dealt with an employee or a partner making a mistake. And instead of jumping down their throat, you use it as a learning opportunity. Like what are some of the processes and tools? They've to help okay. with? All right. So there's, here's the, one of the biggest mistakes we, we ever made. And it also incorporates another one of my little favorite things. I actually have when we used to be in offices, I always had this in my office and it's don't assume. Right. So assuming, and I, and that goes for me as well for anybody else. But if you don't know, you don't know. And so we had a situation in 2008 where we were doing a mailing um, where it was going to come back as BRM. And we wanted to scan all those replies so we know who replied. And the mail house called up my production manager at the time and um, said, hey, do you need these end records on the barcode? And he just goes, no, no, don't need them. Well, it turns out that the scanner couldn't read the barcodes without those two little records at the end, either end of the barcode. So we were getting, oh, and that was, that was one of two mistakes on this one. The other one was um, it was mailed. So there's different postage rates, first class and, and, and standard. And when you mail at standard rates, if you ask for return service, there's a huge fee that comes with that, like, like over a dollar a piece. Mm. And so he just glibly answered when asked, is there going to be a cost to, um, is there going to be a cost to these getting returned? Oh, no, no, it's all fine. Well, so that cost us um, over $20,000 because we couldn't, um, we couldn't charge the client when we had told them it wouldn't cost them anything. So we covered that. Because that's the other thing, that how we are. If we make a mistake as a company, we own it. And, and we don't, client comes first. Mm. And then we had to send three people to the office and we jerry-rigged this thing with the, with the records at the end on each side so that they could scan it in. And three employees went there in the middle of busy season and scanned returns for three days. But I didn't yell at the guy, right? I mean, he already felt bad enough, believe me. Like these were two colossal mistakes. So you just sit down and go, you know, what were you thinking, right? What, what were you thinking? And then, I, and again, that's looking in the mirror thing. Like, why didn't I dive deeper? And just why did I just take his answers at face value? You know, I have a really strong senior VP of, opera, of production right now, and I don't really get very involved in it. But this time, 
uh, this is early. I mean, this was 2008. We'd only been in business for a couple of years. I was very involved in production and I just took his answers at face value too. So that gets back that look in the mirror aspect, like, okay, if I'm going to yell at him, I better yell at me too. So, so, so then you, you just look at it and go, okay, you know, we're going to make sure that when we get into new territory, we have more than one person take a look at it. And we really search out subject matter experts. Like we had a network of mail houses all across the country that we could have reached out to and could have answered these questions for us. Um, and now, I mean, we've, we were young then. We have the internal capability now to even answer those questions. But that's... So let's go this one step deeper. That's a yeah. great example. Um, when you're onboarding new employees, new partners, those types of things, how do you frame the conversation around we're not a finger-pointing organization or we learn from mistakes Talk to us a little bit about that. Is that part yeah. of your onboarding culture? Absolutely. And the don't assume. Like, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If you're not sure, don't do it. Is We haven't really talked about what we do, but we do direct mail communications. So we print sometimes millions of pieces, hundreds of thousands of pieces. So it's not like a digital ad or something. You can just recall it if there's a mistake on it. If, if we print a million pieces and it's got a mistake on it, uh, that's expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we try not to let that happen. We got a lot of process in place to try to make sure that doesn't happen. About just like a newspaper has an errata page, like every day. I'd like to say we batted a thousand one year. We still have never batted a thousand. We've always had to reprint at least a couple pieces. Um, yeah, my, least... my pre previous business was a publishing services company called EEI Communications. And our bread and butter was editorial services, which is, you know, reading through that content before yeah. you hit the print button. And you know, as print changed, so did the need for our editorial services. But again, there's still a need there for sure, because that one mistake can be very, very costly. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and so we do have a pretty formal onboarding process, even in these remote times. I mean, we've gone to the work of documenting processes. We make sure that there's like, when a new person comes on, they, they, they so we're organized in teams. So all of my six partners are marketers and strategists. Um, so we do not like, the direct mail for us is kind of just our product. Really, we're political strategists. Mm -hmm. And then like how we make money is direct mail. So um, it, it's a very known marketplace. Like, you know, the opportunities are very clear. And, and our competitors aren't the other side of the political spectrum. Our competitors are other people in our space who are trying to win the same business. Um, and so we're organized in teams. Um, and so we'll make sure that when someone comes on board, they spend time not only with in their team, but they get to learn some other people in the team. Because sometimes it's easier to ask questions outside your team than inside your team. Like so like subject matter experts concept. We do a lot of collaboration too, though. So it's it's quite often to have two or three or sometimes even four principals serving one client. So then the teams are kind of mixed um, across the principal teams. But Generally, probably 70% of the business is done within a principal and the team servicing that business. And, and what did that business model 
your original business model, having setting it up as teams, or is that something that you've developed through experience? Yeah, Talk that's about been, how you came up. Came up. That's with that been yeah, it's been the business model since day one. So we formed our first company in two thousand five, and it's just natural. It's a natural way to do it because, like a. You know, every company says they're customer focused and I'm going to tell you we're customer focused. We really are. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how we won a lot of business over the years is we, so we started the company in 2005. Uh, almost all the people that started the firm actually worked at a previous company of ours that was going through some difficulty. And the found, so my, I founded that with a guy named Jim Crouch. who's not part of the company anymore. Kevin Mack, who's still my partner and me. So we were the three people that founded it. And Kevin and I had actually been talking to that firm about buying in and we decided it didn't make sense. We're just better off starting our own business. We didn't have non-competes or anything. So we started in the basement of Jim Crowns' house in um, Alexandria, Virginia. Literally, I moved here. My family stayed in California. I was living with them and we, were, we, we set up his basement. We had the IT guys come in and wire it. And, and we did a session like then and, and said, like, what are our, you know, what are our core values going to be? And customer first was uh, an initial value and we stuck to it all the years. And, and that means some things like in our business, it means speed. It means we're going to have the capacity to move fast. Like, so we, are, I have like zillions of examples of that through the years, but like focus groups are a big thing in our business. And sometimes clients will call up like on, Monday and say like I need 10 focus group pieces by Friday and a lot of our competitors will just say no and like we pride ourselves on okay we'll make it happen right and we use the combination of permanent people and then we ramp up every two years like four times as big and but we have on the desi design side we have kind of a group of freelancers that we've been working with for several cycles now plus our core team of four designers Dude, you in, in your initial question, as an initial answer from my startup question, you, you talked about your six partners yeah. and the relationship you have with them. Um, you said, I, I love them. Yeah. Talk to us about how you got to that level of community with your partners. Because I, I suspect you all have different personalities. You all, yeah. you know, have well, different whatever. Well, Okay, this is kind of a, it would be a, a quasi long answer, but so, um, so yeah, we exist in the world of politics. And the first company we formed, um, we became one of the top three firms in the in the business. We had tons of organizational clients and campaigns. We were on Obama both in eight and twelve. Um, we weren't the lead firm; we were the secondary firm, but we were part of that team. So in in twenty twelve, we had an amazing year. And, but one of my partners did some business that uh, pissed off all the clients and the other partner. And so that other partner said, I'm sorry, we, I can't continue to be a partner with you. We're going to have to dissolve the firm. And so we did that. And, and so we went at that time and formed a new firm called Mac Sumner Communications. So that was Kevin Mack. He had over 50% of the equity stake and then, me and then Sumner had been an employee and he became a partner. He got he got the best deal ever, by the way. <laughs> right place, right time. <laughs> Better be lucky so, than good. <laughs> so we were we were great. You know, we were fine. 
Um, but we were like way smaller, way smaller because when that split up, we had other non-partner principals at other firm. So we, we became like one third the size. And so following 2016, I mean, we were part of Hillary's team. We had a lot of other business. We were by all accounts successful. Uh, but we sat around in a couple a couple things. So we sat in January 2017, coming off of 2016. Clearly, we're on the left, so we weren't happy viscerally. <laughs> <laughs> and we also just looked around, and, and my point was, like, we had way more capability than what we were doing. Like, we, we needed more. We needed to grow, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, I was bored. Like, I... I didn't need to run a bit. They didn't even need me to run a business. It was like one third the size of what it used to be. The other thing was we were three white guys on the company. We had one black employee. I think we had three women employees out of the, the eight and the partners. And we were very small at this point. And we said, okay, we want to grow and we want to be more diverse. Right? So we very intentionally set out to attract more people. And then we, two of the employees were on a track to move into kind of like a, a partner role, right? So we were very intentional about how we did all of this. So we brought in a lot of new people. Some of them worked out, some, some didn't. And, and we invested in a facilitator. And we did a lot of meetings around values and who we were. And she used a tool called the Enneagram. So the Enneagram is a personality profiling tool. Best one I've used by far ever. Like, so I've done Myers-Briggs, I've done DISC, and Enneagram, Enneagram nailed it. It's such a powerful tool. So it puts you, it gives you numbers, primary, secondary, third, and then what you're low at. And, it, and, the, and the characteristics associated with those numbers that you are, are the most accurate I've ever seen. Right. So my partner and I, Kevin, are both what are have exactly the same three top. Uh, it's eight, seven, three, which essentially is a very typical profile for people in leadership, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And then all my other most most the two employees she became partners and third Dylan are all sixes. And sixes are far more cautious and always look at the risky side of things. So it's a great balance because Kevin and I are always ready to plow ahead. And the, the, my three, the three, so at, we originally let two, had two new people come in so that we were five partners for a while. They're always like, well, did you think about this? Uh, no, maybe not. <laughs> you know, so that's worked out really well. And, and it was a very intentional process we went through both on valuation, right? And, and how we were going to be with each other. So some of the things we did was when uh, Shannon and Fiona, the two first two partners that came on board, they were um, very they were very minor shareholders compared. And Kevin still was right at fifty percent, and then Dylan and I had the rest. And but we were very conscious of giving them a voice in the in the official decision making process in the operating agreement, so that. Their concern was coming in that Kevin and I would just run the company like we always have. Because it used to be Kevin and I ran the company. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just how it was. Dylan was a partner, and I love him, but he was down in Florida. Kevin and I were here, and 
And Kevin is a political guy, but very interested in business too. He was in EO actually for a while before he moved to California. And so we had to adjust and we had to do that intentionally and, and in our operating agreement. And so in the meantime, we, we had two other um, senior people who brought in a lot of business, uh, uh, Nadia and Adnan. And we did the same thing, very intentional process. We didn't use a consultant anymore for these because we kind of knew the ropes and we knew each other a lot better, but we also empowered them. I mean, so we have an operating agreement where the three partners who now, so three partners now own uh, 70% of the company. They can't make a decision by themselves. Right. That's how strong the, the, the like minority decision-making rights are. So, so I think by doing that, you create an atmosphere where it's very collaborative and it's, we're very different. We don't have a CEO. We don't have a president. I play this role of chief operating officer and I liken it to being a navigator, right? So I do the business planning. I do the compensation planning, which is complex because we do a lot of collaborative work. Um, um, I do production and operations and design all rolls up to me. And when issues arise, I kind of will do almost like a position paper on it, let's say, right? And and do a discussion document. And then we discuss it and then we make a, a decision. And almost always it's consensus, like 100% consensus. Every once in a while, there may be one person who either abstains or just says no. But generally, we get, to, we get to yes. It's a very unusual business model, but it works because we there's the mutual respect for each other. And I, and I like how it, it's based on the personality tool that you mentioned. Yeah. And I find that the benefits of those are not only understanding yourself, but understanding where the other person's coming from. It's like, oh, well, she's a six and yeah. I'm a this. I should expect her to respond to what I want to say in that way. And, and it takes, back to your point about emotion, it takes the emotion out of it. It's like, they're just wired that way. Yeah, they're they, just being a six. <laughs> Jim, you also mentioned something about you know, during the political seasons, you know, every two years you're adding four times the staff and then you're going, bringing that down after the season and up. And talk to us about managing through those onboarding. I mean, it's got to be a tremendous amount of intake. And then like, talk to us, through, like, I'm not sure if any of, anyone else in our audience deals with that type of fluctuation and how have you figured out how to do that without going crazy <laughs> yeah so um i, I think that this is gonna be a little slightly long answer to this but i thought about this i mean one of the things is i didn't you know i didn't start a business until i was 45 mm. right so i was when i founded together with kevin and jim matt crown's group i was 45 and i don't and for most of those years so originally I worked for CPA firms on the audit side. And then I went to work for big companies. I actually spent 10 years in Amsterdam doing a whole variety of roles. Uh, so including all that re-engineering stuff in the 90s. So I tooled up. That's, that's how I like it. I, I came equipped with a lot of knowledge about business process, 
best practices, finance, cash flow planning, compensation planning, all this stuff, um, which has allowed us like to be a well-run company, even though we're small. I mean, we get, we're less, we're like right around 22 employees when we, when we contract. And so we have process, right? And we just did a Salesforce implementation, for example. So for a long time, we ran the company on a system that we built ourselves. Actually, I, I did like the systems design for it. We used an outside firm to actually build it, and it turned out to be one guy. And so, I mean, that takes clear back to 2005. So it was getting a little long in the tooth. I mean, we fixed, we've improved it over the years. But so we we had the internal capability to do a Salesforce implementation. With obviously, we used a, a partner. A, a, an you know, someone who knows how to implement it, but like from the business analysis side, we were able to do it all. So I, my senior VP of operations, Ali Arbello and Brad, our production manager, and then even some of the political people that they have a, they, they understand the process. Like we, and, and the system project was even better for that because we had to document all our processes going in again. Right. And now, and so so we have the we have enough people that we retain, and this is also a big difference. Is we have a lot of staff that's been with us since 2018, and that didn't used to be the case. We used to get even leaner, but because we have more critical mass now, we're able to do enough off year business to to retain people and let them grow inside. So we just have a really solid foundation of people who are used to it, right? So. It was a lot harder in the early days when we really stripped down and we were just like kind of flying by night. And and now we have documented processes, we have systems, and we have knowledgeable people. So it works pretty well. Great, but that, great combination. That said, I mean, it's a challenge now because we're doing a lot of it remote. Sure, certainly. Well, let's change focus a little bit. Jim, tell us, talk to us a little bit about you. We, you grew up how you you talked about Amsterdam CPA firms like give us a little bit of sense of of who you are and how you ended up doing what okay. you're doing today. No, this is this is interesting. Um, so I, I told you as we prepped for this um, that earlier this year my wife found a binder of work that I had done in 2001 with a with a business consultant and part of that uh, a career coach I should say so. Um, part of when I went through that process in 2001 was doing timeline, kind of like we do in EO, but it was even more in depth. And, you know, as I look back on this work I'd done, you know, 20, 20 some years ago, it made me think back to like, what, why did I end up, you know, not working for a big company? And so I, I turned myself like a quiet rebel. I, so I'm one of nine kids. I'm the, I'm the seventh of nine kids, four brothers, four sisters, Irish Catholic family. Um, my mom and dad were very religious. Um, and, you know, we grew up in the, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I don't know if you heard of that movie, Licorice Pizza. Mm -hmm. So that just, that movie totally spoke to me because I'm like kind of like the last of the free generation where my life wasn't structured as a kid, right? <laughs> Our kids certainly didn't have the amount of freedom that I did when I was a kid. And so part, I grew up Catholic. And so the, my first indication of this quiet rebel was in, in our parish, they didn't confirm us until we were in the eighth grade. 
And our parish priest made it a very clear that it was a personal choice. Well, I don't want to offend anyone in the call, but I'm not particularly religious, and I've been pretty convinced of that since I was pretty young. So I refused to get confirmed. Can you imagine the pressure? I mean, it was a lot of pressure. My parents were not. I mean, my mom is an Irish. I mean, she is like she. She's God rest her soul. She's not with us anymore. But she and my dad too. They are both very devout Catholics, and now they're. 13-year-old son is telling them, I am not going to get confirmed. And I stuck to my guns. I didn't. I didn't get confirmed. So so I, I, I tell that story to say that I've always chafed at rules I didn't believe in and bureaucracy for bureaucracy, bureaucracy's sake. So I, I was fortunate in my time when I was coming up in corporate life because I worked for a company called Tandem Computers, which was a Fortune 500 company back in the 90s. And it, it, had, it was a big company. You know, we did $500 million of business in Europe and I was part of European headquarters. And I was just fortunate to be championed by people who knew how to navigate that and kind of protected me from it. Because my natural instinct was at that time, I was a little less mature. <laughs> was to get angry and try to tilt at windmills. And and actually, you know, a huge part of my success is Paul Guest, who was the senior VP of finance in Tandem Europe in the 90s, and the guy named Wilbur Keeboom, who is a Dutch guy who was the senior VP of sales and marketing, because they they taught me a lot about how to be a leader and how to be a good business person. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how when you do look back, and I have the same experience, there are always certain people that just had the little extra push or a little extra direction that got you to whatever direction you're in. And I think about that often when I'm contemplating or I see a mentoring opportunity, like I see somebody coming through with some leadership skills or pioneering out of college or, and it's, you know, am I that, can I be that person that helps them guide into the, the direction yeah. they want to go. No doubt. Um, so, I mean, with Paul, so Paul Guest was an English guy. He came out of the old school public accounting system in England where they didn't even go to university. It was like an apprentice system. <laughs> he worked for Price Waterhouse and then went into high tech. And um, so, at the so this was 1993, and I was like essentially the controller for two business units. And in June of 1993, they were restructured out of existence. And that was exactly when Paul was starting as you know senior VP of finance for Tandem Europe. And his first job was to restructure the company. So I just walked up to him and said, I guess I work for you, right? Because <laughs> I literally didn't have a job. So he goes, oh, I'm gonna need some help doing this restructuring. So why don't you be my restructuring analyst? And so I did that job. The entire time my name was on the list of people who were getting let go. The the entire time I did this job. And and we're in Amsterdam. You know, um, I didn't have kids yet, thank goodness. But I, I had no idea what my future was. And, you know, I hit it off with Paul. He liked me. He liked the job I did. And so he, even though we were laying off people left and right, he created a position for me. (laughs) so 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 
a lot of time when people ask me, like I've had people ask me, you know, what can you attribute your success to? I just say the first thing is, you know, find out what your boss needs and do a good job of doing it. <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which which that Jim leads me into the next question and one of my, another one of my favorites. If you were going to give yourself your younger self, right? Mm -hmm. X amount of years ago, some advice, you're coming out of college, you're in Amsterdam, wh whoever you are, just the younger version of yourself, with all your experience now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, and it's so clear. It's so easy for me. So, um, was, sorry, some of my answers are a little long-winded, but I, I have to get all the context. So my dad was an electronic engineer, and he was an engineer's engineer. Mm -hmm. He firmly, he was so left-brained it hurt. He pretty much was convinced if you knew the inputs, you were going to know the outputs, uh, both with electronic circuits and with people, right? As we know, it doesn't really work that well with people. And so, like, when I, I was a accounting and finance major, business major in school, and I just was disdainful of the organizational behavior course. Like, oh, I'll see if it, because I was left-brained as hell, too. Like, I was convinced that being right was all that mattered, right? On my terms. <laughs> and through my dear wife, who's been working on me for 30 plus years and um, growing up, uh, becoming more mature and doing a lot of reading, I, 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 would get, I would tell myself, figure out how to use your right brain, figure out how to be visceral, figure out how to understand that empathy and treating people right is way more important than having the right answer. That's awesome. You know, it relates to a, a story that I like to tell about, you know, my father was an, is an engineer as well, a civil engineer, and he ran two different businesses. And the second one, it was, he was getting, exiting his, with his partnership as by design and at the time I was doing investment banking work and I was like, dad, you should sell this thing in the open market. You get a better multiple, blah, 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 blah. And he didn't. And, and it's because he had worked out a, a arrangement with his other partners. And the lesson learned for me 10, 15 years later is like that deal, getting a good deal done versus like the best price is more important than just the price or just yeah. one specific aspect of the deal. Cause now he still has got a great relationship with the business. His name's still on the door. He still gets work from them. And so it was a real lesson learned about the, the, the value of the transaction, the, the principles of it are more important than just the ultimate yeah. price or being right. That really speaks to me because, you know, part, so when we did, we've done a major equity trans, transition. So, I mean, we've gone from, my partner, Kevin, being over 50% to, to down to a much lower percentage and no partner has over 25% now. And so we didn't use any outside consultants other than CPAs and lawyers, like for like that kind of advice and how we structured these deals. I own making these deals happen and coming up with a price that was acceptable to the sellers and the buyers. And that, and that was a guiding principle is like, it's, you know, it wasn't for Kevin to like maximize his return. It was that we could create something that lasted, right? It's super rare in our business to have a perspective 
that you want to be an enduring company. I mean, companies come and go like crazy, and that's not our vision. You know, we want another generation of owners after this younger generation that we have now. So, yeah, that really speaks to me. So, Jim, tell the audience how to find you. Will you do you have a social media platform that you prefer? Oh, how, um, to get in touch with you. How, how should we get in touch with you? How would you get in touch with me? I do. I am JC Arnold SF on Twitter. I'm not real active anymore. <laughs> Trying to not get in trouble. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I think it's JC Arnold SF at, on, for Instagram too. And I'm also on LinkedIn, just Jim Arnold Deliver Strategies. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Yeah, and we'll have all those uh, links in our show notes. So anyone curious, just scroll down and you'll find find Jim's information. Well, Jim, it's been awesome having you on the show today. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours, but you've got a, a busy day ahead of you and a, hopefully a fun weekend planned. So I really appreciate you making the time today. Uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Greg. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.